This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. They gave us instruments, a reminder of how God delights to convert all our bad things into good things. Every single one of us here is exposed to the same world. Some of us are seeing its depravity or its badness at a sharper level. Uh, some of us are more insulated from it, but we're all in this world. And one of the keys for us as Christians is to recognize that God's great aim isn't to just get us out of the world. It's to equip us to function in and amidst this badness which, by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, the world is not headed towards Christ in its natural state. It is headed against Christ. And as a result, Christ calls us out of the world so that we can live in his kingdom, which is directly opposite the kingdom of the world. And so we are in this system, but we are in this system in Christ. And how we function in and amidst this badness, for lack of a more simple way of saying it, is essential that we understand. Because some of us are overtaken by the world system and we try and befriend the world system and say, well, wouldn't Christianity be better if we were just buddies with the world and the world liked us, we liked them, and we could just sort of chum around together? There's a whole rendition of Christianity that has come to that conclusion and what happens when the world likes us and we like the world is it empties Christianity of its power. And we end up becoming like the world, and the world does not become like Christ. You see, when you compromise the separateness of the Christian life and try and make terms with the world, you end up losing the essence of what makes Christianity Christianity. And that's where there's a tension, because for most of us in here, we would prefer, let's just be honest, we'd prefer if we could just get along with everyone around us and there'd be no challenge, no drama, no difficulty. Isn't there a way of having that? That isn't what we've been given as far as a commission. We've been sent out as sheep among wolves. We have been directly given our orders from the Most High God to go into this world and shine His light in the midst of darkness. And whether or not we would like to describe this world around us as wrong, it is. The world's systems are wrong. Well, how could you say that, Eric? Because they are opposite God's systems, which are righteous. In other words, God's system is righteousness. The world's system hates God's system. That's what the Word of God teaches us. And you'll even notice that in there's a battle within you, when you hear the clear word of God, there is an argument that will oftentimes rise up. It's like, what? You're asking me to lay down my life? You can't ask me to lay down my life. And there's a friction in us. To actually be termed a sinner is not a compliment in many of our minds. To be, ter to be said to be without hope in this dying world uh, in and of your own state and your own ability to bring about a salvation for your soul, the Bible says actually you're lost. And the only way to be found is to be found by God. And it's not just you finding God, it's God in a sense finding you. You need a savior. And no one likes to hear that, that they are deserving of eternal hellfire. That's not a popular message today, except for that's the message of the word of God. And so, learning how to work through these things, the world has cast a negative spin on the truth of the Word of God. And they're like, oh, it's harsh, it's condemning, it's evil. I mean, they'll even say it that way, that God is evil. It's a, such a funny statement. I mean, look, at he exterminated all these people in the Old Testament. Can you believe if this God is good that he would ever do that? They put this spin on it. And so, as a result, 
we live in a generation of fog. And it's very difficult because when we're in a room like this, sometimes you'll be like, yeah, 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 I get that. And then you walk outside and it's fog. And it's just like, is that true though? Can I, can I really live this out? I want to just go straight at the, the center line on this and I want to encourage us afresh on the fact that though we live in a hostile world, a world that is hostile to truth, and though bad things will indeed happen to your life, you do not need to look at those bad things as bad things. Every bad thing that happens to you, did you know that you can actually smile at it and see it turned to good? Well, that's actually how we live. We live with a smile in our soul. And that's why I want to remind us about this. They gave us instruments. So I named the whole message this. So this is what I'm going to say. Almost summarizes it better than anything else I I could think of. Richard Wurmbrandt's is a famous quote of Richard Wurmbrandt, who was a Romanian Christian. He was the first uh, man imprisoned uh, when the communist regime took over Romania. And the first thing they did is they came before the, the pastors and they basically were wanting to woo them over. And you had a choice as a pastor in Romania. Either you side with the communists and to the communist agenda or you will find uh, that things will go very harshly for you. And Richard Wurmbrandt was prisoner number one. He was the first one to stand up against them and say, how can we as the church of Jesus Christ side with that which hates Christ? It's a really good question, by the way. But he was imprisoned for it and tortured for many years. When he was released, he made this statement. So what was it like in prison, Pastor Wormbrandt? Well, they gave us instruments. They gave you instruments. Instruments with which we could praise our God. We sang praises with those instruments. You mean the guards, the communist guards gave you instruments? Yes, they did. They were our chains. And with our very chains, we would sing praises. Well, the first time I ever heard that, it touched me at such a deep level. Because when I get chains in my life, do I consider them instruments? And here's a man who has suffered so greatly at the hands of evil. And yet his summary statements, when he reflects back upon 10 years of torture, is they gave us instruments. What's your response? When you are struck with unfairness, when you are struck with harsh words, when you're struck with something that is just not right, it's not honorable, it's not fair, it's rude, what's your response? So tell us what it was like when you received that rudeness. Tell us what it was like when you had that unfairness done to you. What is your response? Because when I look at Pastor Wormbrandt, I say, I want that response. I don't know about you, but that's very attractive to me. And there's something about it that is at the very kernel of this message. It's opposite of our natural man response. I'm not asking you what your natural man would say, because all of us would agree. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you hit me in the nose, I bop you back. That's just fairness. And yet Christianity is not based on that same justice system. It's based on something higher. It's a higher law. You hit me, I give back love. I convert through this vessel the way Christ did. You strike him, you scourge him, you hang him on a tree and out comes life. What comes out of us is very different than what comes out of the earthly system. And that is the great statement of Christianity in this world. Our response is, they gave us instruments. So how do we get this perspective in us? That's, I'm going to sort of go through that, and it's, it's not just a pat answer like, well, just have that perspective. Because you can hear that, but it contradicts the very fabric, the, the mechanics of your inner man. So, for instance, many of you have had this feeling, you're offended, and someone says, but you do know that you need to forgive. Intellectually, you know that's right. You've seen the scripture, and you don't want to mess with disobedience, but... The feelings, the trauma, the reality, the injustice of the matter deserves some rumination. It deserves some kind of retaliation. I can't let that person off the hook. That's bad behavior. How can I respond with just love and forgiveness and mercy? Because that doesn't seem just. Nor is it just that the living God came to this earth and in light of your rudeness, 
in light of your hatred, in light of your disobedience, gave you life instead of death. Gave you forgiveness instead of condemnation. Redeemed you instead of allowed you to experience eternal condemnation. We're talking justice here, people. If we're talking justice, we need to be watchful of how we speak. Because we are the very recipients of this kingdom pattern. And that is why it's called good news. Because justice was paid for by him. He absorbs all the injustice upon himself. And we need to recognize we are not the ones that pay back. It has been absorbed. The Maniacal Eric. So like I said, this was my original title. Now you'll notice my my name is spelled E-R-I-C. Okay, the correct way. That's the way I've always said it. And this is like the, the German version of it, Eric. Uh, and it's just sort of, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever pondered the German system, but we as Americans sort of have a chip on our shoulder towards the, the Germans, okay? And, you know, we went through that with the Japanese. I mean, they bombed Pearl Harbor. And we, are, we, we pride ourselves in being a culture that is not prejudiced at all. And yet when you bring up certain things... Uh, like the Soviet Union and uh, Marxism and communism. It's like, whoa, uh, we got some threats here. You guys, you know, cost us a lot. We had this whole nuclear arms race. We spent billions uh, of our tax dollars because of your evil. And I tell you what, when you get to things like Germany, World War I, World War II, I mean, I don't know if, if some of the younger people in here have the same feelings, but the Germans are mean people. And they're self-centered, egotistical. I mean, we have our, our fill-in-the-blank for the Germans. Here's what's weird. I'm German. Uh, and so, in, in some of you know, I went through a study in World War I a, a few weeks ago. And that's what this, I'm going to hint at something that came up in that. Because I'm going through this audio, it was about 18 hours of audio while I was painting and fixing up this room. And there was this one name that kept coming up. And it was very uncomfortable because the man was bad. And he is, he's one of the worst characters in the whole story of World War I. You know like how you have Hitler in World War II and he's like, everyone's just like, boo. Well, in World War I, it's a guy named Eric Ludendorff. <laughs> so my mother's kitchen lecture I, and I don't know how you would respond to this. My mom probably had heard some sermon uh, recently about the depravity of man. And she thought that it would be helpful for me to hear this. And I didn't particularly like it. In fact, I would actually say when she said this, I don't know that I actually agreed with her. If you don't have a savior, Eric, you could become as Hitler. And I'm thinking, Hitler is a special case. Okay, he's like an extra bonus version of evil. And there is no way that I would ever be like that. I have a streak of good in me, and I would never do that sort of thing. That's what's going on inside of my head. I was rather offended by my mom. By the way, this is exactly how anyone feels when they're told that they're a sinner. So don't you realize that I do good things? I'm a basically good person, and I don't particularly like that. Okay, so you have to recognize when we talk about the maniacal Eric, we're heading pretty close to home in some of these baseline things that Eric wrestled with years and years ago. This guy named Stanley Milgram at Yale did a, I'm going to call it a shocking study. That's sort of a play on words. But what he did in the time of what's called the Nuremberg Trials, when uh, the Nazi uh, leadership was being tried, it was a very uh, specific trial that was... uh, uh, Big newsworthy thing. The man had finally been caught. And now, and this man, Stanley Milgram, was thinking, could it be that the Jews just did what, or I'm sorry, the Jews, the German leadership just did what they did because they were under command to do it. And so he wanted to sort of figure out, would other people, I mean, are the Germans just evil? Or maybe other cultures would do the same. And Americans, I mean, this guy even pulled all these different psychologists, all these different leaders to find out, If someone was put in a situation where the experiment stated that some authority would come in and say, do something that was bad, 
what would Americans do? Even if they were paid to be a part of the experiment, would they actually do something bad that would harm someone else if they were commanded to do it? And most people said, no way. I mean, these are like the top psychologists of the time said, uh-uh, I actually think just a fractional, maybe, maybe two or three out of every ten would do that. The response was so, we were unready for it as a culture. I'll say it that way. But here's, here's how the experiment worked. So the person who was being, they, they didn't know it was an experiment. They were just being hired for a teaching uh, thing. And so I don't even know how to describe it because it's, it's very in-depth. But so say I'm picked to come in and there's someone on the other side of uh, a room. I can't really see them, but I can hear them. And uh, I meet them beforehand, find out that they're a real person, and they're being trained. Uh, And so it's the study of how memory and suffering work together. And if you suffer, do you remember at a deeper level? So it's very important. I'm signing up for something that will inflict a certain jolt of electricity. And so I even get the jolt of electricity beforehand to feel what they will be feeling. If they get a wrong answer, I have to give them a jolt. And so if they continue to get a wrong answer, I have to actually turn up the voltage and continue to give it. And so remember, this is just part of the the experiment. And so in this process, when I say 61% of Americans were willing to administer the full amount of voltage three times, that means that this came to the point where the person on the other side is screaming. This is pre-recorded, yelling, pleading for mercy, and the instructor is saying, keep going, it's part of the test. And the Americans... 61%, 61%, 6 out of 10, were willing to get to a lethal level with the person that they couldn't see because it was commanded of them to do it. And they'd already agreed ahead of time that they would work this to the end. Even though the Americans may be sobbing and crying and pleading that they wouldn't have to do it, they still did it. So when I hear that, I'm not too happy about that any more than you are. Okay, I'm very disappointed in us Americans. And yet the point was that Stanley Milgram was bringing in is it's not Germany. This is a human problem. In other words, we have an issue. We can try and say, oh, I wouldn't do that. And yet what we're missing is the fact that we all need a savior, not just Germans and not just Soviets. We need a savior. And that's, in a sense, when you study history and you see the horrors of what men and women have done. When you see Nazi Germany, I don't know if you've ever said, I did a message quite a few years ago, I think it was called The Auschwitz Within. And my instinct is to say, I wouldn't, I would do something. If I was a German and I saw Jews being carted off, I I would do something. Then I pause and I say, God, wouldn't I? I? 45 million Protestant Christians in Germany at that time. It was a Christian nation that did that. I would do something. Would I? In the days of Noah, I would have gotten on the ark. Here's what comes to Eric when I study this. And this is the platform of of this message. John Bradford's famous statement, who died a martyr, there but for the grace of God go I. Yep. I would go in that same direction. But for the grace of God. In other words, the end of these maniacal characters is not separate from us, like, oh, they're a bonus version of bad humanity. We are all a bonus version of bad humanity with the potential to do very bad things. But for the grace of God, there we would all be. So praise God for the grace of God. In other words, instead of pondering how bad I could be, Ponder that I've been saved from the badness. Spelling options for the grand name. Eric is a great name. Eric. Eric. I always make fun of the Eric's with a K. Eric. That's a weird one. With a CK? Come on, guys. And then the German Eric. Okay, now you'll notice that I put the Eric at the very end of the, the poll there. There are E-R-I-Q. A-R-I-Q, those are just wannabe ones. They don't even count. Uh, But I don't even want to be close to the one with the C-H after this story. And yet I feel, as I'm hearing the story, it was so weird for me to walk through. Introducing the amazing Eric. To the Germans, this guy was quite something. You have to realize it's all lens and perspective which glasses you put on. 
Oh, I, I put the picture up just so you would know he doesn't look like me. <laughs> Eric Ludendorff was a German general appointed as the quartermaster general in August 1916. Ludendorff became the leader of the German war efforts during World War I. He was the hero of the Germans. This guy worked such amazing heroics. Right in the very beginning of the, of the war, when they were invading Belgium, he literally single-handedly took an entire uh, regiment uh, of the opposition. I mean, extraordinary, valiant efforts that this man did. He's a brilliant leader. I mean, you have to be to lead an entire army and probably considered by most to be one of the greatest military forces in world history, right? He's a cunning strategist. I mean, these are compliments, right? This guy's amazing. The German army in the First World War, disciplined, orderly, fierce, and excellent. So when you think of, remember the old pictures of Nazi Germany where you see them marching in line and they're high-stepping? Well, that's still a derivative of the army from the First World War. In fact, many people would say that the Second World War army was actually a weaker army. However, they still had the discipline of the First World War army. So in other words, we're dealing with what may be considered the strongest military force ever, at least up to that time, very likely the strongest military force ever, still in hindsight, if it was matched up and had the same capabilities of a modern-day army, it would probably be the greatest military force ever. Who led it? Eric Ludendorff. Okay, do you see how weird this is for me? Now, some of you are just like, well, what's the big deal? If your name was Vladimir Len, and, and someone comes up to you one day and says, what's your name? Vladimir Len? And you're like, that's weird. There's like a character in history named Vladimir Lenin. Really? What was he like? <laughs> What's your name? Well, my name's Adolf. Oh, really? Adolf what? Adolf Hit. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the character named Adolf Hitler? No. Tell me about him. Could you imagine if someone says, oh, have you ever heard of Eric Ludendorff? There's an Eric Ludendorff? What was he like? Oh, he was very famous. Well, tell me about him. Are you sure you want to know? <laughs> the German part of me. When I was reading, studying about the German army, it reminds me of me. I mean, the more you know me, and if you study the German army, it's like there's a reason why Eric likes discipline, likes order. I mean, I don't kick my legs up like this when I walk, but I like to walk. I mean, it's weird. It's like this whole thing just explained me in a nutshell. I'm very German. I'm, see, you had to realize what that does to me when I, when I hear this story of Eric Ludendorff. It's like, I feel the propensity to be German in the story. It's like, I don't want to be German. God, save me from being German. I don't know how you're going to appropriate this message, but I want the same cry to be in you. God, save me from my humanity. Because we all have the propensity, whether or not you're going to be walking around with stiff legs and going, Heil Hitler! We all have the propensity towards something very dark. And unless we have the grace of God, so we go there too. So listen to this. My dad's name is Winston Ludi. My mom's name is Barbara Obendorf. <laughs> See, you guys didn't even know that. <laughs> if you were to put those names together... What name would you have if you named your son Eric? Okay, so you can understand why this is a little awkward for me. So this is Eric Ludendorff. Now I want you to just listen because I so totally disagree with what I'm about to quote. So totally disagree that you could not pick a more opposite quotation than Eric Ludy would give, than what Eric Ludendorff would say. He said, I decline Christianity because it is Jewish, because it is international, and because in a cowardly fashion preaches peace on earth. That's Eric Ludendorff. This is Eric Ludendorff, not Eric Ludy, for all that will be listening via podcast. Eric Ludendorff says, the days of the cross are counted. We must deliver the German nation from the pernicious influence of Christianity. Eric Ludendorff says, Hitler is the only man who has any political sense, go and listen to him one day. Whoa. Okay, uh, do you see why I don't really want to be associated with this guy? Uh, 
The strange connection I don't want. Ludendorff was my same age when the events of World War I were unfolding as I am right now. So a hundred years removed, and this guy is my age, appropriating that same battle, and he's German, and he has a name that sounds strangely similar to mine, yet the way that he walked through it is very different than the way I would ever want to walk through anything. So Eric Ludendorff, just to give you an idea of why this is hard for me, Eric Ludendorff wasn't just a German over troops. He was the strategist behind how the war could be won. And at this exact time in Russia, which had been ruled by a czar for 300 years, there is a revolt or a revolution taking place in Russia because of World War I. It's actually, that's what's creating the problem. And the czar of Russia is overthrown. Germany has a challenge because they're facing all the allied countries to the west of them, which would be Britain, France, and then the Americans. And they have a problem because they're having to take half their troops and fight the Russians. If they could get Russia to fall to pieces, then they could take all their strength and put it towards the Western Front. So Eric Ludendorff strategizes something so evil that it is hard for me even to describe what the results of this are. There is a political exile in Switzerland at the time. And he finds this political exile that was from Russia that has dastardly political aims and views that he knows would destroy Russia. If that guy could get into Russia, he would destroy Russia. So Eric Ludendorff sticks him on a sealed train and sends him into the capital city. And this man appears off of the train car and literally destroys the country of Russia. Vladimir Lenin. Eric Ludendorff is the one who sent Vladimir Lenin into Russia. So you understand, this is like Hitler-esque. The results of Vladimir Lenin going into Russia leads to communism, leads to what we know as the Soviet Union. Hundreds of millions of deaths. So 1917 sealed train cars filled with ideology that would change the world and lead to hundreds of millions of deaths and billions of people denied access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The stab in the back myth. After World War I, Ludendorff champions a certain ideology, a thought. And that is that we were betrayed from the inside. We would not have lost this war if it hadn't been... For the Jews inside of Germany that betrayed us. If it wasn't for the Bolsheviks and the communists. If it wasn't for them, we would have won. We were betrayed. We were stabbed in the back. And what this does is this creates a boiling cauldron. And if you've studied World War II, you know what that leads to. It leads to an attack on Russia. Well, I can show you real quick. The cause and the effect, the irrational hatred of the German leadership towards these supposed betrayers led to their annihilation in World War II. 27 million Russians die due to the Germans' war of annihilation. It wasn't a war unto peace. It was a war to destroy every last one of them. And they killed 27 million. And the annihilation of the Jews. Most of us only know the lower number. We don't understand the higher number. Six million Jews. Where did this come from? Well, a guy named Eric Ludendorff. Okay, so if you get into my skin for a little bit, you can understand why this message matters to me. In other words, I don't want anything to do with that. There but for the grace of God go I. In other words, instead of just throwing statements out to say, oh, go to hell, Eric Ludendorff, to recognize that Eric Ludy has the same propensity for selfishness for selfish gain, for conspiracy to destroy those that would oppose me. I have it. It's there. And yet, but for the grace of God, I go there too. But there is something that I want to emphasize, and that is, I have found the grace of God. I know the grace of God. And I've been changed. The redemption of the grabber. So we, we started, and, and it was funny because Jake Redding was the one that read the scripture this morning. I thought that was appropriate. I don't know, Jake, if you had the same thought. But his name is Jacob. 
And so that was a story of Jacob. Jacob is one of the great pictures of what we could call redemption. Because his very name means heel grabber, supplanter, deceiver. That's actually what Jacob means. The reason we name our kids Jacob isn't because of necessarily the meaning of it, because that sounds weird. It's that this man esteemed the truth and was redeemed out of that. He was an Eric Ludendorff. He was an Adolf Hitler, if you want to say it that way. And that's hard for us because Jacob's a good character. He's on the good side, isn't he? And yet everything this man is doing in the story up to a certain point is actually for selfish gain. It is conspiring to gain what belongs to someone else for himself. The fact that he esteemed good things is a good quality, but the way he went about doing it was actually evil. He was a con man. I know we don't like to say that, but Jacob was unhealthy. Yes, he was in the lineage of faith, but he needed to have faith. And he didn't have it yet. His confidence was in his cunning and in his ability to grasp and to gain. So he is the grabber. But there is a redemption that takes place. There is a converting of this man, Jacob, into something different. Still looks very similar. Still has a lot of similarities. I mean, same hairdo, maybe. But there's something different about him, and that is Instead of grabbing the heel, which is where he got his name, he grabs Esau's heel. He grasps for the birthright. He grasps for the blessing. He's a grasper, selfish grasper. Instead, he takes that same grip and he grabs God. And when he grabs God, he changes. This man is, we could say, converted. He is altered. He is redeemed. That which was lost is found. What changed? How he used that grip. You have a human life, but most of us, we understand what it means to grasp for that which is selfish. That which would give us what we want. But the secret to Christianity is that we must let go of that and grab a hold of the grace that is offered to us in Christ Jesus. So the heel grabber becomes the God grabber. The great work of the cross. You know the great work of the cross? If you want to look at it this way, is taking that which is evil and converting it. You know the devil is conspiring? It says that Satan filled Judas. And what's Judas doing? (laughs) It's literally Satan in and through a man betraying the Son of God. With a kiss, 30 pieces of silver, got him. Satan wants to crucify him. And you could say, uh, Satan, do you know what's going to happen to you if you do? No, because if he did, he wouldn't have done it. That's actually what it says. If he had known what was going to happen, of course he wouldn't have done that. But he didn't know. He didn't understand how God converts everything. You throw evil at the Son of God, what comes out? Redemption? You throw nastiness at the Son of God, what comes out? Love? You throw death at the Son of God, what comes out? Life? He's a converter. In other words, no matter what you do to him, He comes in love and he is victorious. He triumphs, but the way he triumphs is very odd when you actually think it through. It's like, wow. So he didn't return evil for evil. No. He received evil and he returned something good. You see, you are going to receive evil in this life. It's guaranteed. I can't shield you from it. And God doesn't seem to try and shield you from it either. Instead, he makes you into a conversion device. He says, come to me. And be converted in me, and then I will make you a converter. One that can receive anything the world has to dish out, and it actually turns into your strength. It's like a weight in a weight room. At first, you could say, this is a negative. It falls on your chest like, what is this? And Jesus says, push it. And when you do, you convert that heavy weight into muscular strength. The Lord hath redeemed Jacob. Now think about this with what you know. Jacob was his first name. And when he wrestles with God, he gets a new name. Israel. Israel is the people of faith. The ones who have grabbed a hold of God. And as a result, are saved. And so as a result for all of us, the same thing is true. The Lord has redeemed that first messed up character. And has glorified himself in and through the second The one who has now been changed. So my hope in this is that 
God redeems the German Eric Ludendorff, which I feel very akin to, even though I don't want to. I don't want to check my family history to see if I actually go back to him somehow or that I'm strangely related to him. I don't even want to find that out. I already feel too close. And has glorified himself in the second. That's the desire of every single one of us, that there would be a conversion. The redemption of the heel grabber. The Lord hath redeemed Jacob. Why does he even care about the Eric Ludendorffs? See, many of us are like, oh, you know, he doesn't love Vladimir Lenin. He doesn't love Adolf Hitler. Those are bad guys. I'm not saying they're good guys. I'm saying they're just a symbol of the extremity. But in the heart of man rests that same darkness. It's just most of us don't have a political stage with which to wield it. We don't have the power with which to hold sway. So as a result, we just are a little Adolf Hitler oftentimes in our own soul. And the key is that we recognize that it's selfishness that destroys your life and destroys nations. That's what's wrong with Adolf Hitler. He's a grasping man who, yes, is demonically controlled. But what do you think selfishness is? The very essence of selfishness is the devil himself. That's what Jesus Christ came to set us free from so that we could be redeemed. Redemption means the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners, the act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. The story of Joseph. I'll just go give some of the classic illustrations in scripture. Joseph, the story of Joseph is one of those great conversion stories. Because everything on the outside looking in, it's a bad story. If we just stop the story when he's thrown into prison, it's just a sad tale. It's like, oh, the poor guy. I mean... He, yeah, he probably shouldn't have shared his dreams as quickly as he did. Maybe that was a misstep by, by the little guy. But wow, what he received. I mean, he was sold into slavery by his very brothers. And then he's living an honest life. And Potiphar's wife, like, betrays him. He lies about him. And then he ends up in prison. I mean, this is just a bad, dark story. The guy is removed from every bit of fellowship with his family. His closeness with his father is lost. His integrity is completely blown out of the water as far as public opinion polls is concerned. He looks like a common criminal. What's the good in all of that? And yet in the very story itself is the picture of the Messiah. What you're seeing is literally, and the Jews always thought there's going to be a Messiah that comes in the story of Joseph in that way. Where though he is sold into slavery, though he is betrayed, though... He seems to be in the dungeon. He will rise unto great strength and authority. Oh, that's the story of Jesus, by the way. And Joseph himself, when he encounters his brothers after he is second in command in Egypt, says exactly that. This was actually, even though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The story of Jericho. Jericho is a bad place. I mean, what what good can come out of Jericho? Do you know that there's a prostitute in Jericho that's in the lineage of Jesus? Well, there's one thing. Rahab came out of Jericho. Do you know that all that uh, jewels, the precious metals, all that that was in Jericho that God says, that's mine. Remember that? Why would God want anything out of that place? Just lay it flat. It's just evil. Instead, just like in our life, he comes in and he destroys the old man and takes out that which is worth something to him, which is us. He saves us from that old system, rescues us. And you know what he does with that, uh, those riches of Jericho? Israel built the temple with it. In other words, it literally is converted into the dwelling place of God. Doesn't that sound like Christianity? Yeah. Take something that's evil and give it to God, and what happens? It becomes the dwelling place of the Most High in all his glory. Huh. I like it. Manure has always been my symbol of something that if I just asked you about manure, what's your opinion on manure, you're probably going to say it stinks, okay? It's disgusting. I'm not going to argue with you. However, if you're a farmer or a gardener, 
you might have a different uh, perspective. I don't know, farm, yeah, farmer, farmer would. Uh, okay, I was, gonna say, I was thinking of some guy that had cattle. Maybe he wouldn't like manure either. It's just too much of it. Uh, and so, however, if you have a different lens towards it, that which stinks actually can be converted into the best fertilizer. And out of that manure comes greater life. When someone dishes out manure on your life, they might not mean it for good. They might not be saying, here's some good fertilizer. They may be throwing a pile of manure at you. And it stinks. It doesn't feel good to have manure thrown on you. But if you understand how God converts, you can receive that with joy. And actually get sort of excited. Boy, I'm going to get some good flowers out of this. In other words, that's God's lens towards it. The God turn in every dark hour. So the cross is exactly this. And for all of us, when I talk about this, that God turns all things that are meant for evil into good, that's the concept that we see in Scripture. We see it illustrated nonstop, but the cross is the best picture of it. So many of us, and this is not bad, this is the starter package, whenever we face a difficulty in our life, we rehearse the fact that, but God is going to turn this. But God always turns these sorts of things into good. And that's good. That's a wonderful thought process. However, we fall short of the next gradient of maturity in that. And that is that it's not just that God turns it into good. It's that we participate in the process. In other words, when someone spits on you, you could say, well, God, I hope that you turn that spittle into something good in the years to come. Or you could say, God, right now, I pray that you would turn that spittle into love through my life, into joy, that I could give to that person what they need right now. You see, they need love instead of my spite, instead of my irritation. And so I pray that you would convert that which the enemy or that person is meaning for evil in my life, the way you did at the cross, that you would convert this exact circumstance into gold, into something precious, into something that reveals your glory. See, every single one of us might understand, you know, even if you're young, you probably have brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters have the ability, I don't know how they do it, but to dish out some difficulty. And so we, every single one of us as Christians, have the ability not to just look at the grand work of the cross and say, God will turn all of this someday into good. But he can turn it right now into good through our life. Yes, the circumstances, you may not see how that one grand event in your life will steer into something good. Yet Maybe you can't see that. But if you are hit with unfairness, if you are hit with rudeness and you respond with love, with forgiveness, with joy, it's converted immediately. We have the privilege of participating in that. So here's just an illustration from history. It's just a funny one. Within 100 years, this is Voltaire, a God-hater, sort of like Eric Ludendorff. Within a hundred years, the Bible and Christianity will be swept from existence and pass into history. That was back in 1778. Only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's press and house to produce stacks of Bibles. Isn't that God's sense of humor? You see, God really does have a good sense of humor. And though the devil will curse your life and say there's nothing worth it in, in that life, get rid of it. He wants you destroyed. That when you receive this evil and allow it to be converted and you love and you rejoice and you sing praises and you worship God and you give the gospel and you share truth, God is in a very real sense revealing the power of the gospel unto salvation in and through your life. Transformed waste. So we know, especially in our culture, about recycling. Okay, I mean, how could you not in this culture? So I'm going to use that illustration and understand what is going on here. So there's a symbol for recycling up at the top. Recycling is processing waste into new products. Okay, we, we know that, right? However, what we don't understand is how this works in a spiritual sense. We're going to call it spiritual recycling. See, at the center of it is the cross. This is what the cross does. It's recycling pro- it's, spiritual recycling is processing wasted lives into new people. So recycling materials include many kinds of glass, paper, metal, plastic, textiles, and electronics. Now look at what spiritually recyclable materials are. Includes dumb moves, 
idiotic behaviors, idiotic maneuvers, boneheaded behaviors, and otherwise self-centered fleshly acts of ridiculousness. Every single one of us has received those and has dished them out. And yet our God, if we will freshly come to him, will convert every single one of them. You know that even your mistakes, when you were too hasty in your words spoken, when you were too strong in your tone of voice and you were offensive, when you were rude, because by the way, I wouldn't put it past you. If we come to that cross afresh, even when we're the perpetrator, I know this is really hard to comprehend because it's one thing to receive it and to convert it. It's a whole other thing when you actually realize, wow, I'm the one that dished it out. But when you humble yourself, you come to the cross and say, God, could you take this and convert this? He will. I don't know if you found this out, but when you come and humble yourself before someone that actually has the power of God unto salvation in that circumstance, it actually can change their life, even though you're the one that was rude. But your response to even your rudeness and the evil that you may have agreed with, actually when you respond even to that, it converts it into a greater power. The cross is the great converter. You enter in with your waist and out comes something spectacular. This is like one of those more humorous cartoonish type of illustrations. But if you were to sort of imagine some kind of little hallway here and it makes sort of type of noise. And so you have your junk and you come to the cross with it. And then you come out the other side like, whoa, how did that work? There is, I mean, basically Jesus is saying, bring it all. Bring everything. But God, I mean, how could you convert this? Bring it. Yeah, that too. Well, God, I mean, how, why would you want that? Bring it. You see, we can bring all of our failings, look at this, and all of everyone else's failings. You see, all the stuff that has wounded us, harmed us, hurt us, all the stuff that we have wounded and harmed and hurt other people, and we bring it to the cross and... And literally out the other side comes the beauty of God. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. It's not that we need to convert it all. That we have this hunk of junk and God's saying, prove it. Make something good out of that. And we're like, trying, God, does this please you? No. Oh, how about this? And we're like, we try and do our little thing. We build our little version of the converting device and make some noises out of it. And nothing happens. And God says, that doesn't work. Like, oh, and that's what living under the law is. I can't convert this stuff. I can't make anything good that resembles Jesus out of it. But he can. I need to humble myself and bring it to him. You enter in with your waist and out comes something spectacular. But as for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And then in Romans 8... With every passing year, this statement of Paul the Apostle elevates in my thinking because it is so central to the thinking and daily behavior of the Christian. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. All things. I don't know what you're toting around right now. I don't know what wounds you have. I can only guess you live in the same fallen world that I do. And the propensity, even within this body full of love and truth, we can hurt each other. Take it to the cross and let that be converted. Even today, you know that you can do this instantly when someone speaks poorly to you? Immediately take it to the cross and out comes words of life, humility, love, instead of curses and a punch to the nose. We don't have to live like the Eric Ludendorffs. We don't have to be Vladimir Lenin's. Though we all have the same depravity, though we all have the same ailment, selfishness, the yearning for power and control, if we will humble ourselves and come to the cross, God will convert that which otherwise would have produced evil, fruit of the flesh, so that it can produce life. 
So you bring death. This is what Jesus did. This is what the cross is. Death, and out comes life. You, bring, you come dirty, and you come out cleaned. You're lost, you become found. You're sinful, you become righteous. You're selfish, you become loving. You're Jacob, you become Israel. You bring the manure, and out comes fertilizer. You receive chains in prison, and out comes instruments of praise. In other words, in all of these things, every circumstance, could you imagine if you applied this to every single circumstance in your life? Every single weight that you carry, every single difficulty is an instrument of praise. Is there any reason why we can't smile every moment of every day if we have that mentality? And what's interesting and amazing is that is actually what God gives us. A Christian is uniquely given something that no one else on earth has. The ability to take every challenge, every difficulty, every strain, and see it turned to good. Every last one of them. And if you're anything like me, you can know that, and then you hit a trial. And that's why you have to freshly rehearse truth to say, I I do believe it. You see, it's one thing to hear me talk about it. It's a whole other thing to have faith and to actually rise up and say, that's true. That's who my God is. My God converts all of that junk, all of my junk, all of their junk. He is a junk converter. If we will give it to him. He can't convert junk that we don't give to him. But if we will do it and let him have it, he will do what we cannot do. Becoming a converter. You see, we, if, if you've come to the conclusion that God is a converter, and boy, are you happy about that. Oh, I'm so happy that God is a converter. Well, you do know that you're the body of Christ. That you actually function in that same mechanical role of seeing something converted. When people throw lies, accusations, unfairness, injustice, venom, spite, hatred, Selfishness, contempt. By the way, this could be a long list of options. You could all start throwing out words. How about this? Yep, yep, that too. And a thousand other various other forms of manure onto your life. What do you do? You see, in each of our souls, the inner workings, this is where this matters. It isn't just in the head side of your life where you're like, that's true, amen. It's in the depths of your being where you actually agree with it by faith. You know that it's sort of risky? Sort of risky to allow God to convert something immediately to love and life. I don't know what you, if you understand what I mean by that. Who's it risky for? It's really not risky for your spiritual man. It's risky for your natural man. Because your natural man likes to nurse things. You get a certain pleasure from nursing heartache. Even though you think, I don't like heartache. Well, then why do you nurse it? Nursing grudges. Thinking of how wrong someone else's behavior was. Even trying to process it with other people. It's just like, you know, and I'm not trying to speak ill of them, but I just need to process this. We nurse these things. They're they're very real. In the human side of who we are, it is a very real propensity, and it's it's a real challenge that we face. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there isn't a time for processing. You just have to be very honorable and loving in that process. But the first thing that you do in every circumstance is bring it to Jesus. And let him immediately convert it so that you don't need to process it in the flesh, out of a selfish heart, out of a desire for destruction for someone else. A Christian doesn't work that way. I remember hearing the story of Betsy Ten Boom has always so deeply convicted me. And so Corey Ten Boom is the one that writes it. Betsy wasn't the one that told the story, but Betsy or Corey Ten Boom and Betsy Ten Boom, they were both in Ravensbrück concentration camp and where just hundreds of thousands of women were uh, exterminated. I mean, it's just horrifying stories. And Betsy would be kicked with one of those steel-toed boots of the Nazi soldier. She was such a sweet, loving woman. And when Corey would see it, she would just get enraged. 
at these soldiers that would treat her sister who was so weak and frail and feeble because of what they'd done to her. And Betsy, instead of getting upset with the soldier, would see both the soldier and Corey. And she would plead with Corey to not hold an offense, but to love this man. This man doesn't know Jesus. How could he behave any different without Jesus, Corey? Please love him with me. I care for his soul. Let's pray for him. There's a conversion there. A steel-toed boot to your ribs, turning into, Corey, please don't hold any offense against him. Please don't let it burden you. This man doesn't know Christ. We must pray that he does come to know Christ. That's supernatural, by the way. That doesn't come out of any of us. We need the cross to have such a response. But if you will take that steel-toed boot and bring it into the converter, you too could love as Betsy Ten Boom. This past week, I have just been brought freshly to that point of sensitivity and tenderness. We'll call it the Betsy Ten Boom tenderness. To choose to have compassion, to ponder the fact that I too have been in circumstances where I was blind to my behavior and I thought I was doing something good and to deliberately ooze out love in a normal spot where I could be offended. And in the process, I have had such joy this week, such a blessing of the presence of God in circumstances that might not otherwise have presented such joy. And for all of you to remember that you don't deserve mercy in the truest sense, to just freshly reflect on the fact that without the grace of God, you're in a bad situation right now. Without any hope in this world outside of the grace of God. In other words, for whatever reason, you see something. You see the cross. You see the truth. Why? I can't explain how it all works. People have tried to explain it and figure out the soteriology of these things of how some people see, some people don't. It's a miserable argument, by the way, because it distracts us from the fact that, praise God that you see. The fact that I see, what do I say? What do I do in response? I praise him. I thank him. I say, God, why would I allow even a remnant of selfishness to remain when you have given so unselfishly to my life to rescue me from being a Nazi, from being a killer, from being someone who is raising my fist against the Most High God? Thank you for being so patient and gentle with me that you would redeem one such as I, though I have offered nothing of merit to him, nothing that would earn any type of position or any type of, oh, okay, well, as long as you do that, then I'll save you, Eric. I bring nothing, and he has brought everything. If he has brought everything to you too and you see today the same thing I see, what is the right response but to give him everything, to lay our lives down and say, take it, Lord Jesus. He has converted this, this, and he wants to show his life through it. Let's allow him to do that. There but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go us. Praise Jesus Christ for choosing us, for calling us, for saving us out of the fire, setting our feet upon a rock, for filling us with his Holy Spirit, for renewing our mind, for removing the flesh and the world system from us so that we could actually begin to function in a way that glorifies him. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. 
Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.